Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. I can almost taste the danger, Chris. And there's one thing about danger. It makes me want a podcast. <laughs> Oh, today is the ninth episode in our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series. As we reach the waning years of the 1980s, we get some of the more unusual spins on the Indiana Jones formula. I would like to say those of you who lived in the United States back then, remember that PSA, the public service announcement, this is your brain, and they'd show an egg, and then they'd crack it into a frying pan where it sizzled and say, this is your brain on drugs. I would say that that's this episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's <laughs> or at least half of this episode. Yeah. Well, well. So yeah, the first movie we have up today is a, a film entitled "The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck." Borneo, faraway land of mystery and danger, home of the fearless safari guide Buck Malone. Pet He's a man of action. Isn't that a restaurant on the corner of Columbus and Sydney? Always ready for a challenge. How did I get into this again? A man of great vision. A man who speaks many languages. Who knows many tongues. A man always eager to lend a hand. This guy looks like he'll drink straight through your trust fund. Deep in the jungle, he leads a hunting party where no safari has gone before. Now, the chase is on. Oh, my God. And there's fun on the run. It's the wildest time in the wackiest jungle. Come share high adventure with David Keith and Playmate of the Year, Kathy Shower. And... See The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck. The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck has a title that in the grand tradition of Leonard Part 6 implies that the character has had numerous previous adventures, none of which we've seen. Thank goodness. Right on. (laughs) The film was written by Paul Mason, Barry Jacobs, and Stuart Jacobs, all of whom had careers primarily in television. Uh, All three guys wrote for Chips, and the Jacobses wrote for Lee Major's early 80s series The Fall Guy, uh, a show which has, by the way, my second favorite title theme song of all time. And a place in our hearts. Love the Fall Guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Paul Mason also wrote an episode of Manable, so there's that. Oh, that's that's on the other <laughs> side of my heart. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck. I'm just going to call it Tennessee Buck from here on out, because if I have to say the full title one more time, uh, I'm not going to make it through the podcast. Uh, it's directed by and stars David Keith who you should definitely not confuse with Keith David. Yes, I was uh I was wishing that I was dyslexic at different points in this movie <laughs> because if it had been uh starring and directed by Keith David, it would have been I think a million times better. No offense David Keith because I don't know that that all of this is on you. No, 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 no. That's uh, maybe, I don't know. I think there's plenty of blame to go around. Oops, is that a spoiler? 
Keith, Keith stars as the legendary hunter and guide Tennessee Buck Malone. Uh, and we'll just, we should just say it right off the bat. Uh, he's the death stalker of Indiana Jones knockoff characters. Yes. And um, just to, I'm going to try and be as clinical as possible because I feel that oddly enough, our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, as far as the movies we've had to watch, has had in my estimation, the lowest batting average of any of our series so far as, as film quality goes. You know, personally, you know, like I take no enjoyment in in that at all. No. But uh, so looking at Tennessee Buck, though, I'm trying to, you know, diagnose the victim here. Well, he's dead. Doing the autopsy. And this is the epitome of why I think the series has get me another Indiana Jones, because the character was so in the forefront and people really, really wanted another version of that character and not necessarily always a version of the story right. that Raiders of the Lost Ark did. And this is a movie that 100% Tennessee Buck is supposed to be in Indiana Jones, and that's it. It takes absolutely nothing else nothing. from Raiders of the Lost Ark. It takes nothing. Yeah, there's no there's no quest. There's no, there's no object that's being chased. There's no mystery that's being uncovered. Honestly, there's not much plot to begin with. No. It just sort of exists. The whole story engine is they're going on a safari. Yeah. That is the entire story engine. That's the MacGuffin. And it takes a while for that engine to gear up. I won't get to it. Uh, yes. <laughs> The film also stars 1986 Playboy Playmate of the Year Kathy Schauer, Brant Von Hoffman, Sidney Lassick, and Celayor Silvana. Sidney Lassick, I want to add, was an American character actor who had a long career, including uh, don't, uh, he almost said don't tell mom she flew over the cuckoo's nest. One flew over the cuckoo's nest and don't tell mom the babysitter's <laughs> dead, as well as deep cover, by the but way. <laughs> But Chris, uh, I know that w there's a strike going on right now and we're, you know, I'm not doing any scab work, but don't, don't tell mom what flew over the cuckoo's nest or what would be amazing. <laughs> I, I'm not sure what, what it is. the 80s comedy version of it. I'm, I'm there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, this movie. Uh, it, it, this movie opens with newlywed couple Kent and Barbara Manchester, who are just the worst. They are just absolutely the worst. They are the personification of '80s conspicuous consumption. Like they are, they are almost, almost in. Like it feels like they are just. They are the emblem of that time in the worst possible way. Yeah, take the neighbor couple in, uh, what, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, Todd and Margo? I love Todd and Margo. They were in the right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Something had to break the window. Something had to smash the stereo. It's true. And then they, uh, <laughs> but they're on vacation here. And one of the ways that you know that they're complete and utter assholes <laughs> who you're not supposed to sympathize with is that one of the uh, native folks who are carrying their copious amounts of luggage, one of them drops it. Yeah. And then they yell at that person. And then the evil guy, they have him cane. Yeah, they have him cane. Yes. Just, oh, and it's, and, and yeah, it's, it is, uh, uh, can I just say, this movie makes Cannibal Holocaust 
look woke. Yes, it, yes, it does. <laughs> yes, gonna, it does. Yeah. Uh, to give you a sense of the tone here, like one of the first shots of the film is Barbara lounging on the deck of a boat, painting her nails in a bikini. Uh, and with the stereotypical sexy saxophone music that you get in like a bad sitcom when the mom discovers like her inner goddess or something like that. To be clear, I never have problem with saxophone in anything. (laughs) Give me all the sax, baby. So Ken Ken wants to go on a on a big game hunt on his honeymoon because he's a big jerk, and uh, and that's that is that is the setup for this movie. Um, We are introduced to Tennessee Buck Malone when he arrives in the little like Riverside Village uh, with crocodile skins to sell, and the first thing that happens is he's challenged to a fight by a guy whose wife he slept with. First of all, it's the dullest fight ever. It is just like, I wanted to, I honestly, I thought I was going to fall into a coma watching this fight. Yeah, it looks like the fist fight from a late 70s lower tier television show, right? Yes. Where it's just kind of all in a two shot, uh, like two full body shot, and it's just one guy throws a fake punch and then he goes down to his knee and then he gets up and rinse repeat. You'd mentioned the sax music. There's a lot that actually feels like bad TV in this. I had the same thought. Like the wipe transitions. Yeah. There, there are these wipe transitions and some go across the screen, almost star Wars style, but then it has some where it's like, Oh, the box is in the middle and the, and it just like the square goes out and you go through the square into the next scene. And I'm like, this is like a, every transition off of a grass Valley switcher from the eighties, which was like a, uh, for those that don't know, it was a video production switchboard that did cheesy wipes and things they they were often used in in newsrooms local local stations had them uh, i know because i worked at one at one point uh, and we still had it <laughs> left over in the 90s uh, <laughs> i'm shocked that they didn't have a star wipe. yes i mean honestly that would have been that would have been the icing on the cake or some chirons come up like breaking news <laughs> Tennessee Bucks in a fight. Buck Buck wins this fight, this boring fight. And so naturally he continues to sleep with the woman through the, the, the first part of the movie. And I just, about this woman who, who seems to be in some kind of full body, like she's barely clothed. She's in some kind of full body makeup, I think to make her look, quote, ethnic yes but i'm not sure what ethnicity she's supposed to be because basically she comes off as sort of dull green yes like it's like a dull green paint it's like a it's like a shitty version of an orion from star trek yeah i mean this is uh and what this was uh was this shot sri lanka sri lanka yes yeah so i i believe that the makeup is 100 percent supposed to match and be sri lankan face <laughs> and they also you call the character a woman, but I don't know that the movie thinks of her as such. No, um, no. Because she is essentially a wild beast yeah. who can only be tamed by wanting to have sex with Buck. And that's it. Yeah, I guess that, that, that is all there is. That's, yeah, that's the gist of it. Yeah. Woo. We should we should mention, because it, it sets up a plot point for later, uh, for what, what plot there is, um, that Buck wears an amulet around his neck. That he won't sell for any price. I, I for, at first thought it might have been the amulet of the Schwartz. Yes, and this is the amulet that at the end of the movie, I think I my I think I popped a vein in my <laughs> my head, Chris. <laughs> yes, because I'll just yes. say that that the, 
the fact that he won't give this up, <laughs> this amulet, and this amulet has supposedly magic yeah. powers where you can never be yeah. harmed or, or killed if you're wearing it. And it's, it is, I guess, the real MacGuffin of this movie. <laughs> and the way that it is utilized so, will, will make your head explode. This movie, it's like, it's like a golem comprised of all the worst aspects of all the movies we've watched in this series to date. It's like they, <laughs> they took all the worst parts of it. Like, you know, the, the racism, the sexism, all of it, everything terrible about the movies we watched and just stuffed them all into one movie. That's just, it's like a sin eater for Indiana Jones dock offs. <laughs> yes. And there's so much racism and sexism oh and bad God. stuff that like, there was no room for story. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We got to we got to cram in a, a a totally unearned rape sequence. Oh, we can't possibly oh, it's have just characters the grow. Worst. It's just yeah. We'll get to it. It's the worst. Um. So yeah, we already covered the porter drops the bags and he gets beaten for it early in the movie. There's an elephant that gets loose in this village and he sends a jeep over the cliff and he kills Ken and Barbara's original guide and the elephant is charging at Barbara. So Buck shoots it dead. And I'm just like, killing the elephant, it's like the opposite of saving the cat. Like, I'm going to write a book called Kill the Elephant about all the things not to do in how to make your your, your character likable and how to make your movie work. Like, it's it's the antithesis. Now, I, I, I'm going to get a little personal here, Chris. I, uh, I'm Buddhist, and I don't believe in killing people. I know it's a it's a radical departure from most people's beliefs, and yet they have set <laughs> they have set her up to be the worst person in the world who had a guy caned, happily had a guy caned because he dropped her luggage, and this elephant has just been frightened and is scared and acting out of uh, animal instinct, and I'm like. You picked the wrong victim to make me think he's great for shooting an elephant, man. Oh, God. It's just like, and Ken, the husband, is such a jerk. He even has the line, well, how'd you get the bullet so perfect in the brain pan? It's literally just the worst. It is just, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> oh, my God. It's oh. just, you know, hey, we, we take them as they come, and 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 some movies are going to be good, and some movies are going to be the further adventures of Tennessee Buck. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just... So Buck is jailed for killing the elephant and, and simultaneously commended for saving the American tourist in the only moment in this movie that approaches satire of any kind. Yeah. But Ken decides he wants Buck to be his new guide, so he pays for Buck to get released from prison and then coerces him to doing to doing so. Like that's that's the plot. And oh yeah, I want to mention as Ken is coming up with this whole idea, he's thinking of this whole idea. Barbara, they're in the hotel, Barbara's in the bathtub. And he's setting up a video camera that is aimed at their bed. <laughs> Listen, I, I don't mind a little sleaze now and again, but but this movie is just, it, it's distasteful. Like, I want to wash my eyes out. Yeah, I mean, I guess the one the one thing going for it in that moment is that at least the sleaze was subtle. <laughs> they don't, as you said, they don't call attention to the fact, really, that he's setting up the camera to point at the bed. Whereas most things in this movie, they it, the movie will grab you with two hands by the collar 
<laughs> demand your attention at the sleaze. Like basically Buck is drunk in the bar, you know, and, and the woman who he, he fought the husband over, the, the green skinned woman, she notices Buck eyeing Barbara. So she breaks into Barbara's luggage and steals her lingerie and she wears it hoping to attract Buck. And guess what? The plan works. It sure does. <laughs> yep. This is a movie where Buck is passed out and the green chick and another woman take off his pants and notice he still has an erection. And there's the line, quote, even in his sleep. Yeah. And then they're fighting over him uh, because the one lady tells the green skinned lady, <laughs> you got to sleep with him last night. It's my turn. And what does Buck do? Oh, he wakes up. He wakes up. He wakes up so he can, yeah. he can do them both. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, he says, there's enough of me to go around, ladies. Yeah, that's... Uh, anyway. Buck, his assistant Sanaga, and Ken and Barbara fly out to go hunting in a remote area. Oh, by the way, Rob, I think Buck and his assistant share their clothes. Like, there's this orange tank top with the word Tennessee across the front, and I think I see them both wearing it at some point. At different points, yes. I don't know if that was just a cosping or just, oh, hey, these dudes share their clothes. <laughs> well, they take off, and Buck opens the door as they're taking off, so a gust of wind blows Barbara's dress up in the air so they can see her naughty bits. And what's really funny about the scene is you can clearly see the two strings that were actually used to lift the dress up. They're oh, yeah. very clearly visible. I'm like, that's fine. I guess, you know, if I'm going to say anything good about this movie, I guess the location photography is like the shots of the plane flying over jungle and, yeah. you know, it was shot in Sri Lanka, although it takes place in Borneo. I guess it's got that going for it. And, and Buck's plane in and of itself, not what goes on inside of it. Oh, wait, it's a seaplane. It's another seaplane. It's another seaplane, but we we get a different kind where this is the kind where the the propeller is in the middle of the fuselage above. Yeah, it's like the plane that he flies to the, the island in the Wicker Man. Yeah, so I enjoyed the plane. Yeah, I enjoyed that plane. It's around this point, Chris, by the way, while watching this movie, I was moved. Oh. I was moved to translate some ancient literature. Oh. Uh, a sacred religious text. Oh. And I wrote down, I am become Drek. <laughs> destroyer of worlds <laughs> oh god were you where was uh was uh was florence pew anywhere around or was it just no yeah, no, <laughs> no not at all <laughs> so they arrive they, they they land they arrive at this this native village and buck approaches the chief actually you know what this is one of the few things i thought was actually funny because ken and barbara are waiting by the plane and buck walks up to the chief and the tribe and there's a moment where like, are they friendly? And Buck and the chief kind of knock heads as a sign of friendship. Yeah. And I actually thought that was genuinely funny. Like that was that was the funny moment of the movie. Uh, then there's a great feast that night. And and we should talk a little bit about the feast and what goes on at the uh, the great feast with the native, the, the friendly native tribes. Yes, yes. The group is treated to uh, an, what is, I'm sure, an authentic native dance by a very, very well-endowed uh, woman. Like the green chick, she's also in full body makeup. Yeah. I mean, you know, like Ken is literally sitting there with his tongue hanging out watching the dance. It's, oh, God. It's, yeah. And this is a high point compared to what will happen later. Yes. It, each, it really is like, it's like aging, <laughs> where, you know, when you're in your, 
you're in your teenage years and you think, oh, everything's so terrible. And then you're yeah. late twenties, thirties, you go, oh, I had it. So I had it easy back then or whatever. And I know a lot of people don't blah, blah, blah. But this movie is that each time I think, oh my God, it just got worse. This is the worst it could possibly be. I look back 15 minutes later and go, I wish I was at the dinner <laughs> where they were just <laughs> ogling that woman because oh, oh. <laughs> I, I didn't know how good I had no, it no. watching this movie. <laughs> like uh, 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 the chief offers the woman to Ken, but he politely declines because, you know, he's on his honeymoon. So it's, you know, uh, after yes. all, but Buck just picks up the woman and carries her off. And it's, uh, later that night, Buck and Barbara have a philosophical conversation about life and sex. Careful, Missy. Those things around here like to hunt at night. Does that include the headhunters? Just over the second ridge. They can't see it from here. You mean they're there? They're there, all right. Sanaga says you lived with them. Did you... Eat human flesh? Yeah. They call it long pig. It's actually kind of sweet tasting. Sanaga says you can't be killed while you're wearing that amulet. Sanaga talks too much. Your uh, party broke up early. Just being courteous. Let's the chief think he's a big man. Isn't that what you do? Is that what you don't like about me? Because I'm a beauty queen who married a rich man. Well, my husband gets his money's worth every night, more than his money's worth. Which is more than you can say. You wouldn't be sitting out here alone at midnight holding on to some goddamn good luck medal. You better pay your dues before you start putting other people down. Now, Rob, I was watching this movie. My wife was working upstairs at her real job, and she heard the line. Hopefully not on a conference. (laughs) (laughs) She heard the line, my husband gets his money's worth every night more than his money worth. And she called downstairs and are like, what the hell are you watching? (laughs) And did did that ever happen during the perils of Gwendolyn in the land of the Yik Yak? No, like Gwendolyn, like Gwendolyn feels woke in comparison to this movie. Yeah. By the way, I'm going to retroactively apologize to every other movie that I talked poorly about. So Gwendolyn, you're a star. Oh my God. Like Gwendolyn feels like it's really in tune to like, you know, sort of women, the female point of view in comparison to the further adventures of Tennessee Buck. Yeah. And my favorite part is this is where we learned some extra info about Buck. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You get Buck's backstory. He used to live with that cannibal tribe and he's asked, have you ever eaten human flesh? You know, he refers to it as long pig. Oh God. So now he's, he's both a, a reformed cannibal and immortal because of his stupid amulet. <laughs> so anyway, they go on the hunt. And I, I, it was around this time that I actually realized the real problem with the movie. It's not, it's not just a lack of, <laughs> it's not, just, 
it's, it's not just a lack of <laughs> of taste or style or 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 uh, you know moral a moral centeredness. No, what I realized the problem with this movie is that nobody wants anything. Like, there's no goal that that nobody's Buck doesn't want anything. You know, Barbara doesn't even want to be there. Ken, I guess, wants to shoot an animal. He's an ass, so you you don't care about his goal. Yes, the tiger hunt, right? So there's no there's nothing pushing the story. There is no engine. It is it is literally like opening up the 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 the, the hood of a car and finding a bunch of possums in there. Yeah, it's the Richard Linklater <laughs> hangout movie of terrible exploitation oh, that God. really doesn't respect anybody. No, like it, no. None of the characters. Not, I'm not even sure that this movie quite respects Buck, frankly. No, it, it, it definitely does not. It absolutely does not. Yeah, and not in a blazing saddles kind of a way. And David Keith directed and started it. I, yeah. Um. Well, anyway, so then the big plot twist comes, which is they're captured by cannibals, which, hey, at least something happens. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, the cannibals, by the way, have uh, physical, like, engage in physical comedy hijinks like they're the Three Stooges. Yeah. And are accompanied by music that that befits the Three Stooges. Yes. And so, I mean, you know, just to go down, you know, obviously you've got the, the racist tropes about all of this. Yep. And then you're also not supposed to take them seriously because they're inferior to Buck. Although, you are then later... To have them treated in this comedy style, the movie goes somewhere later that it just does not deserve to go. People are all, they're tied up outside, they're, they're on like, you know, stakes and they're tied up. Uh, Barbara is taken to the one of the huts where she is slathered in oil. Uh, and and oddly looks like she's enjoying it, which is really weird. Yeah, buck naked, yeah. tied up. They're oiling mostly her boobs, although the rest of her body is shiny as well. Yeah. And again, I, I, I at this point I thought, oh my god, I wish I was watching the, <laughs> the dancing dance. scene earlier. <laughs> this is as low as this movie could possibly get. That's wrong, Rob. Yes, it. Yes, it is. So Buck convinces the natives that Ken is a powerful chief and that he and Sinagra should be set free. And, and what actually is going to happen is they're going to be hunted for sport. And, and the movie just goes out of its way to make Ken the worst character so you won't feel bad when he's killed, which, by the way, happens off screen. Like, he actually tells Sinagra, he's like, see the color of my skin? I'm the boss. Like, oh, my God. It's weird. It's not like that I've... I've seen plenty of movies that do set people up, a character up that way, right? That they do terrible things. Sure. Hey, <laughs> you know, booby, <laughs> you know. But um, it's just, you know, there's some secret sauce that's missing because it is just completely not enjoyable. And, and somehow it comes across as there's a point at which when you're doing things, even if the film is like, see, isn't this bad? But somehow the film is still reveling in it. Yeah. And it's just, I, I I don't, it's not enjoyable. It's awful. What doesn't happen off screen is the next scene where the chief of the tribe enters the hut that Barbara is in. She's naked and covered with oil and he throws Ken's severed head onto the floor and then proceeds to rape her. And it's terrible. Like it is an awful, awful, awful scene it is completely unearned. It tonally doesn't match what's came before. It's, it is just, it's upsetting. And I'm just like, Oh God. And that, I really do wish we were back at the, at the, at the, 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 the banquet the night before. Yeah. Look, 
obviously art can tackle serious and difficult subjects. Yes. Those serious and difficult subjects and the particular expression in any given piece of art isn't necessarily for everyone in an audience. Absolutely. But the thing is, is when you do that, you have to tackle it with great care and precision and artistry. You have to do the best you can a movie this dumb that wants to be dumb this movie wants to be dumb and i have nothing wrong with a movie that's just dumb fun and when your goal is to be a dumb rollicking adventure you don't get to do this you don't you can never come back from the The movie never comes back doesn't even try uh in in fact there are certain things and there are things later that that make it even worse Mm -hmm. you know barbara in this scene and in immediately after is is devastated and they're playing it as such and i'm like you just you don't get to do that in this movie and then they don't and then they stop doing it which makes it even worse oh god it's just it's just because then it's not long after that she's having scenes with buck like absolutely nothing happened where she's bright and cheery and sunny and 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 kind of like hey buck's into me all right and you're just like no the the way that it is handled is abs i cannot think of a worse way to handle this subject matter. That's because there isn't a worse way to handle this subject. Uh, the, the Tennessee Buck takes the cake. <sighs> oh, Jesus. So uh, Buck has been hanging there for a while. And finally, the mother of the chief notices his amulet. He's been hanging there for days. And she finally notices his amulet. And she says that Buck saved her life as well as that of the old chief and his son, who was the one who just raped Barbara. And uh, for doing so, he was given an amulet that protects him from all harm. Here's an odd thing, Rob. The version of the movie that's on Tubi doesn't have the subtitles explaining all of this. Yeah. Like the like the mother's just talking and it's unsubtitled gibberish and, and doesn't. But the version that's on YouTube has the subtitles explaining all of this. It is so weird. You know, like you don't if you're watching the the Tubi version, you don't get this information until Buck later tells the story. So Buck is put in a cage by the chief, but his mother free or the the mother frees him. It's not Buck's mother. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Uh, and he escapes the village with Barbara. They're chased through the jungle, and then they stop for a while for Buck to tell this story about how he and his family were flying over the island, and 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 they crashed, and uh, his wife and child were killed, and then he became part of the tribe, and he gets the amulet, and why the tribe didn't recognize Buck until the old woman noticed the amulet, I have no idea i mean it's just was he eight when he had his wife and child and crashed and thus they could not recognize him all grown up now no (laughs) (laughs) no of course not that's insane even for the stupid so stupid it's uh, it's barbara gets attacked by fire ants i think and buck throws her in a pool to wash them off and then he and barbara make out a couple hours after she was raped and her husband was murdered Uh, it's yeah it's it's the worst. It's just the worst. Yeah, and it's it's like uh, it's it's like late night Cinemax version of sexy times here, right? Um, but like you know, at least a late night Cinemax movie wouldn't wouldn't do what what this movie did. Yeah, you know, it's trying to be a thing. This movie, I don't know what, I don't know. Like, uh, so they make it back to the plane. And uh, and they take off, uh, and the chief is hanging off the plane, and they throw the chief, they get the chief off, and then the, the buck takes off his medallion and throws it down to the chief. 
Yeah. Uh, it's Oh, and by the way, I want to point out at this point the the music from the movie sounds like it's from Weekend at Bernie's or Police Academy 5 Assignment Miami Beach. Yeah. So this entire movie well, the entire part that they were being chased by this tribe, Buck knew they were after the amulet. Now it it is talked about mm-hmm. that that that's why they're after them. Which means that at the end of the day, at any point when all of their lives were endangered, Buck could have just said, it's not worth it. I'll give this up. Only after all of the death and destruction and rape does Buck just nonchalantly toss it away. And it's and it's not this is not like a lesson learned. No, he's just like it's played off as like, eh, yeah, I don't want it. I don't eh, don't need this thing. Ah. And then to add insult to injury, Chris. The movie ends on a freeze frame of a sunset for, I think, 22 minutes. <laughs> like, yeah, to does. top everything off, it's not even a freeze frame of characters high-fiving no. or giving each other the business. It is a freeze frame of a sunset. Yes. I was feeling pretty bleak after watching Tennessee Buck this week. That was, uh, I was just... It was just tough. I mean, you know, it was. There's a reason why we included it, but I, I, I it, it just was tough. That said, thankfully, our second movie this week went a long way towards lifting my cinematic spirits. Yeah, this is Bloodstone. Once upon a time, there lived a princess called Lafla. When she died. Her blood and soul were transferred into a mythical ruby, which then became the Bloodstone. Eight centuries later, an unlikely cast of characters would be drawn together by the magic of the Bloodstone. Two charming American newlyweds. Sandy. An incredible Indian inspector. Because you have tried to smuggle an illegal toothbrush into the country, sir. A small-time thief. The Titanic, Mr. McVeigh, was built by professionals. Noel was an amateur. An international criminal with expensive tastes. And a very special camp driver. for the first time in my life. Those who didn't have the Bloodstone would do anything to get it. Those who had it didn't even know. And India, as we know it, would never be the same again. Let's get out of here. Outrageous. Bloodstone. A Nico Masterakis production from Omega Entertainment. Bloodstone was written and produced by Nico Masterakis, the Greek filmmaker and director of such films as Island of Death, Death Has Blue Eyes, and Nightmare at Noon. Masterakis was originally going to direct this film, but was unable to travel to India at the last minute for what are still unknown reasons, and so therefore he hired Dwight H. Little to take his place. Little also directed a Get Me Another Favorite, Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. Absolutely. And he did it 
the same year. They both came out in the same year, 88. This is his Rambo First Blood Part 2 Aliens year. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Two back within the same month. They came both came out in October of 88. What a month, man. Given how the 80s were, if you told me he shot them simultaneously, I'd believe it. <laughs> like... uh, in the 90s, he would later go on to direct movies like Mark for Death, Rapid Fire, and Murder at 1600. Rob, that's the address that changes all the rules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why would... What, I, I can't imagine... Wait, wait Chris, I'm t was there some sort of trend in the 90s <laughs> that had to do with... The president being in peril? <laughs> Could that possibly have been something? It, it, it might have been a thing in the 90s. It might have been a thing. Okay. I mean, let's just say that coming on the heels of the further adventures of Tennessee Buck, Bloodstone feels like Lawrence of Arabia by comparison. Yeah, meets Dr. Zhivago. I'm just, it's everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. The film stars Brett Steinle, Anna Nichols, Jack Keller, Christopher Neem, and in an absolutely star turn, oh, yeah. legendary Indian actor Regina Kanth as the cab driver and jack of all trades and total badass Shyam Sabu. Yeah. Oh, my He's God. He's fantastic. He. He makes this movie. I have to say, he gives J.T. Stryker a run for his money. And Chris, I might blaspheme. I might like him a little bit better. Uh, I'd certainly want to hang out with him more. But I want to. I want to get a movie with J.T. Stryker and Rick Spear and and Sabu and and the th that's yes. my Avengers, man. Yes. We open with something in this movie that we haven't seen so far in this series. It's interesting. It's a flashback scene to the origin of the artifact at the center of the quest, the bloodstone. Yeah. And, and we see the, how this the death of this princess in 12th century India gave rise to the legend of the bloodstone, an enormous ruby that makes the emerald from romancing the stone look like something you'd find in a box of Lucky Charms. And it's, it's an interesting thing because this would become kind of like a common thing for some of the movies in the nineties and later of this type where you'd get like the flashback origin to, to antiquity times. Looking at you, Stephen Summers, the mummy. Yeah. yeah. Mummy. Um, I think, I think national treasure might do something like that. And yeah. these are movies that we'll cover down the road in some bonus episodes after the, after the initial series. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it's real interesting. And of course, as is the case with many valuable Indian treasures, where did the Blundstone end up, Rob? It belongs in a museum. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't belong in a museum, no! but it wound up there. It yeah. wound up there. England, of course, because, you know, they stole everything from, from India. Not, I want to mention, England, not Wales, because apparently our show has gotten big in Wales this month. Yes. Wales, we love you. Uh, Nova Scotia, too. We love you, Nova Scotia. Yes. Uh, we, we're uh, going to come to a live show sometime. Uh, That'd be amazing. I would love it. Uh, in the present day, thief Paul Laurie has stolen the bloodstone and is making his way to India to sell it to well-heeled fence Ludwig von Hoven. And he finds himself on a train with newlyweds Sandy and Stephanie. Sandy is a former policeman and Stephanie is an heir to a textile fortune. And there's so much to unpack here. Number one, this is a movie that does not give a shit about the don't name characters with the, that start with the same letter. No, everybody starts with an S. If your name starts with an S, you're a hero. So we get the couple, <laughs> the newlywed couple, and yep. we get Shia Sabu. 
yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. And um, it doesn't care. The other thing this movie nails, absolutely nails, is Americans general, in general, Americans distrust slash hatred of trains. Yes. Because <laughs> they're complaining about the train to no end. I am not one of those people. I love I'm trains. Not either. But but many Americans hate trains. The cliche is true. I would yeah. say the vast majority of Americans absolutely hate trains. This movie nails it, Chris. Yeah, it really does. It really <laughs> does. It, it's interesting. Unlike the couple in the last movie, here the woman is the one who comes from the more wealthy background. Uh, and it's just an interesting spin on the typical dynamic where, you know, rich husband, you know, and wife. It's like, no, 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 the, the wife's the rich one. Yeah, the other thing this movie does, which I found um like a breath of fresh air is that it, it's okay with us liking characters, unlike yeah. the further adventures of Tennessee Vine. Yeah, well, yeah. I kind of liked everybody in this movie. Like, even the bad guy, I thought he was interesting, and and I kind of liked him. Like, it's... More movies need Dutch bad guys. I'm just yeah. saying it. There, it's severely underplayed, the Dutch bad guy. Christopher Neem is terrific. Oh, yeah, you absolutely. Uh, I remember seeing him in one James Bond movie. He was in License to Kill with Timothy Dalton, oh. and he's like a British agent who's, you know, I just remember he's got the line, Mr. Bond, we're shipping you straight back to London in the diplomatic bag. <laughs> Just to compare it for one second again with Tennessee Buck, but in a, this is a movie that it doesn't have a ton of it, but it's it's a B movie exploitation, right? Right. This movie also has uh, things that, that are designed to be titillation for dudes. Sure. Except the the thing about this movie is you see like bare breasts at the bad guy's lair as he's got these women frolicking in the fountain or whatever the heck it is. As one does. Yeah, as one does. And it's, you know, we all know why those shots are there. But then it's presented in the context of, and here's the bad guy who's like making them do this. He set this world. Yes. It's a classic Cecil B. DeMille technique of we're going to show you horny stuff and violence and then on the one hand and we're gonna we're gonna get ticket sales because of that but on the other hand we're gonna say oh morally that's wrong so (laughs) it's it's having its cake and eating its too uh but i would much rather have it that way right (laughs) than than what what the further adventures of tennessee buck does. you know again i like the the main actors here are really good uh brett steinley certainly has the look of an 80s action star he's got like the chiseled jawline yeah uh it is slightly undercut by the fact that his voice was dubbed by starsky and hutch actor david soul oh Wow. And I could detect that there's like something feels a little off. Steinle carved out a niche, by the way, playing later on in his life, playing JFK in movies that needed a JFK, but he wasn't the main focus. So he's like JFK in Watchmen and Transformers Dark of the Moon. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder, are those a shared universe? Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> With this movie. Sure. Why not? Uh, what the one fault I have at the beginning that Laurie is presented as sort of so incompetent, I have a hard time believing he could steal the bloodstone. Like it, they don't show the theft at the beginning, and I just—it's like, how did this guy? You know, it was he, this ruby is the size of a man's head, 
And how this guy stole it, I'll have no idea. I would imagine it involved spray to check for lasers in the museum, a glass cutter with a suction cup. <laughs> I don't want to see that guy doing the bit from, from uh, what was the movie? Entrapment. With, with Entrapment, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yes. Or, or maybe he's doing the laser dance. I would give real money to see him do the laser dance from Ocean's 12. Oh, yeah. That Vincent Cassell does. Yeah, that would be amazing. Anyway, his air of incompetence is far exceeded by that of Inspector Ramesh, who is the the cop pursuing him. And this guy is like a combination of Inspector Clouseau and Captain Harris from the Police Academy movies. He was my least favorite character in the film. Like, I just, he kind of irritated me the whole time. Sure. Yeah. And he's got a little bit of what, uh, but he's a good guy. Like, you you think for a while, you're, you're wondering if he is or he isn't. Uh, in that way, it reminded me of uh, what Jean Renault in French Kiss a little bit. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He does this weird, like he's got this weird shoulder wiggle and and he's got the overuse and overpronunciation of the word outrageous. Uh, you know, if there was a drinking game. Outrageous. Yeah, if you had a drinking game, you'd be on the floor after about a half an hour. What I didn't realize until after the film was over, that that character was a white actor in Indian makeup. And I didn't put that together till later. Uh, yeah. I I didn't either. Uh, Charlie Brill, the actor. Uh, and and what, what it was in a ton of stuff, including the classic Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. He was Arn Darvid, the disguised Klingon spy, a role that he reprised on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And I'm just like, oh my God, oh, spoiler for uh, Trouble with Tribbles, which is, came out in 1967. So, you know, hey. He also, this is an interesting little fact about Charlie Brill. He also appeared on the Ed Sullivan show doing sketch comedy the night the Beatles made their first appearance. No. Yeah. Impossible. You know what that is, Chris? Outrageous. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it is. Outrageous. Knowing he's being watched by the police, Lori decides to put the, the bloodstone in Stephanie's tennis bag. Tennis bags were big in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, he's got one of those. She's, they've got the head racket. I think my dad had a similar racket. Uh, and he has the intent of retreating later. And it's around this point in the film we're introduced to Shyam Sabu, played by Regina Kanf. This guy is just the best. Absolutely. And I, I had trouble because the, uh, the character's name is spelled S-H-Y-A-M. Yes. But Sandy McVee. No, McVeigh. McVeigh. Sandy. McVeigh. <laughs> Sandy constantly pronounces his name as Sham the whole movie once wow. they meet up. And I, I couldn't quite figure it out because literally no Indian says this guy's name that I could, <laughs> that I could hear. So it's only the American like pronouncing, possibly mispronouncing the name. I You can't trust that pronunciation. It's the weirdest thing. But... To get back to Shyam. He's so good. He is, I love, you get such a classic, many classic introductions to him. He gets a parking ticket on his cab. Oh, yeah. And he yeah. inspects the ticket. What does he do with that ticket, Chris? Puts it in the glove box with all the other tickets. 
He's not paying those tickets. he don't care. You don't care. Hell no. And then his first kind of like action chase sequence. Is is not have anything to do with the plot. It's just no. him trying to get like a stuffy couple to the airport or train station on time. And, you know, it's it's great. It is great. Yes. And he is driving. I, I love the it's taking the trope of, you know, all around the world of crazy cab drivers who right. are driving super fast because they want to get their next fare. But it's it's invoking it as this guy's superpower. Yeah. <laughs> which it is and will be throughout this movie. Yes! Yeah. 100%. And then he, he later ends up being, he takes Sandy and Stephanie to their hotel. And unbeknownst to everyone, the bloodstone falls out of her tennis bag into the trunk of his cab. And goons employed by Van Hoven follow both Sandy and Stephanie and and Sabu separately. And it's it's fantastic. Sandy catches the goons in the hotel room. There's a pretty good fight. Like, I like that he's set up as a, oh, he's an ex-cop. So he knows how to do some of this stuff. It's very Casey Ryback in, uh, oh, you yeah. know, in, in Under Siege, where it's like, well, he's not just a cook. You know, he's got a story. Yeah, and, and I there's a bunch of stuff here where... When those guys break into the hotel room, the nonchalance that Sandy shows, he just, he's like, oh, there are two gentlemen in here who've broken in and are trying to attack us. And he just kind of takes them down. And then afterwards, it's just, it's like, well, I got to call room service to get rid of these bodies. Don't know why they were here. And it's so nonchalant. They're not not at all like. He's the perfect running mate. Like him and his wife don't seem at all like. Like trouble, like oh, this it doesn't alert them to something larger at all. It just feels like oh, well, people in my room, I gotta kick their asses. Yeah, and and this matches Savu driving the cab when people are after him because the nonchalance yeah. with which he just uh, he you know runs a car off a road into a ditch that's yeah. after him. Yeah, and then that car in a ditch does what cars in ditches everywhere do: explodes. <laughs> and the nonchalance with which. He turns back and goes, eh, I guess the car explodes. <laughs> and then he gets back in the cab. A guy starts shooting at him and he just runs that dude over like it ain't no thing. As well he should. You know, he was shooting at him. He was asking Another for day it. at the office. <laughs> so Sabu and Sandy, we're already seeing two sides of the same coin. Th- these guys are going to make great partners. But will they? And they are. They are a great partners. And well, one thing I want to take a moment to say about Bloodstone is the Indian locations in this movie are terrific. Absolutely. It was shot in and around the city of Bangalore. And it has just an authenticity in that regard that you cannot fake. You you cannot. This is not this is not Burbank for Bangalore. This is the real thing, and you you know it from the minute from minute one. It's it's terrific. Yeah, and that, you know it's one of those weird ways where it's not like the story is a hundred percent. I mean, it's dependent upon the location because that's where the bloodstone came from, and it's returning. But it, you know they're not doing like you know Mission Impossible Burj Khalifa right you know style sequences <laughs> for certain right. things right. It's, so it's not. In that way, critical. But I, it gave me a similar feeling of in the Margarita movies where, like, you know, you're in Turkey yeah. and you get a little flavor of Istanbul while you're there. Absolutely. It, things of that where you do – it's more of a James Bond use of locale in that way. Yes, 100%. 
Uh, Sandy and Stephanie, who were in completely nonplussed by the fact that they had a bunch of intruders in their room, they go to a, a local market, and it's a, it's it's really cool. And that is where Stephanie is kidnapped. And there's a great moment, one of my favorite moments in this movie, visually, in, in the market chase, is that uh, a gunman takes out a gun and shoots at Sandy and hits a number of clay pots right next to him. And they each explode with a different colored dust. Oh, and yeah. it's just... It's just so cool. It's just so cool. Yeah, like a nice, you know, and relatively cheap visual flourish. Uh, and this is where getting a, a director like Dwight Little. I, I think I texted you because I'd watched Buck and then I was watching this and I'm like, I'm in the I'm cradled in the capable hands of Dwight Little right now, Chris. <laughs> I was like, your bloodstone's much better. He's done a ton of stuff. Obviously, I mentioned some of his movies, but yeah. he's done a ton of television over the years. Like he's just one of those, he's a professional guy and he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And the fights and the action sequences, I mean, we're not sitting here breaking them down like a YouTube film essay, but no. it, it's all done like with precision. It's really good. You know where you are in a fight. You know what's you know where the, the characters are in a fight. You know what's at stake. Yep. All of the things are there. And it's it's just, you know, rock solid. It is. It, absolutely. Sandy is knocked unconscious and when he wakes up, he's with Sabu and they discuss the Bloodstone and they agree to work together to help get Stephanie back. And I was I was briefly confused by the way Sabu was talking about it. It sounded like he didn't have the Bloodstone because the last time we saw him, he's finding it in the trunk of his car. But that was him being, you know, being coy and, and not necessarily giving away his whole hand. Because they might be working together, but they don't trust each other yet, Chris. They don't trust each other. I want There's a great moment where, like, one of Van Hoven's guys delivers, like, his demands to the hotel room where they are, and Sandy closes the door on him, then opens back up, punches it in the face, and then close it again. It's great. <laughs> it truly is. When Sabu admits that he has the bloodstone, that leads to a fight between him and Sandy that actually ends with them starting to become friends. It's so good. The fight between the two of them in the hotel room is so good. It's the sort of thing my wife doesn't understand, how guys can have a fight and actually become friends on the other side of it. My wife does not believe that or understand it, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, in this fight, it's not exactly they live length. No. But <laughs> it's pretty long. Yeah. It's still pretty long. Uh, you know, and I, it's funny while, <laughs> while watching it, I'm just like, oh, this is... This is like if Captain America and the Hulk have to fight, you know, it's like, it's going to end okay, though. It's yeah. going to end okay. It's like a couple of years ago when we watched the first season of Cobra Kai and and Daniel LaRusso and, and, and Johnny Lawrence, after all this stuff, they go to a bar and start to have a drink and they're starting to, starting to, their relationships are thought. My wife's like, how is this possible? I'm like, no, that is how guys are. And, and it's just, it is fundamentally different. And that is just, that is... I love the friendship between Sandy and Sabu. It is totally, I totally buy it. 100%. Yes, absolutely. It is, um, and you know, this is another, this is around the point in the movie too. We're not 100% there yet, but it, it is uh, interesting. And you can bifurcate this movie, not exactly half and half. I'm not sure, you know, what the minute count was when you make the switch, but you start this movie with, um, and your main characters are, are Sandy and Stephanie. Yes. And then you switch in this movie and Sabu becomes your your main character. Absolutely. I mean, you you've got all of them. All of them exist 
in throughout the whole movie, but the focus shifts yeah. uh, at a certain point. And that also coincides when, when this movie kicks into overdrive. Absolutely. So they have to go, they have to journey to the location where the exchange is going to be. They're going to exchange the Ruby for Stephanie and they have to go to that location, which is pretty far because they, they have to journey through the jungle to get there. I should mention before they leave on the journey, they have a classic eighties loading guns and arming themselves montage. It's amazing. Yes, that that is amazing. And I thought you were going to talk about when they are trekking through. Uh, and the, Sandy's walking behind uh, Sabu's ahead. Yes. And uh, a snake drops out of a tree. And yes. So what does Sandy do? He, <laughs> he shoots it. Shoots it point blank. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I love that, like... The 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 incident where they have the incident with the snake, and then after that, they're like, "There's got to be a a better way to get there." And then you cut to Sandy and Sabu in a very small boat negotiating like a river rapid. It's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, well, at least they're not going to have to cross a giant chasm with smashy, smashy rocks below only over a thin and scant (laughs) rope bridge, Chris. Uh, They will, in fact, do. They wouldn't pick that route. Oh no. Oh! Yeah, the train is going to go down over this long rope bridge over a river. Um, but when Van Hoven's men arrive and they don't have Stephanie, Sandy and Sabu, they all three names uh, start with S. The three principal characters start with S. It's screwing me up. <laughs> like, they, they realize that they've been had and that they are going to have to break into Van Hoven's palatial estate to rescue. Yeah, and also what I most love is Sandy gets to the the side yeah gets to the cliff and is punching out dudes but sabu's in the middle of the rope bridge when the bad guys set it on fire yes from both ends yes oh and I, I i won't i won't spoil the end of that sequence this will be a rare one but oh it's fantastic it's 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 great it really is it really is meanwhile van hoven is doing his best version of a bond villain and he's like whining and dining stephanie like he gives her like a, a very fancy dress to wear and he's throwing this lavish party and he's he's clearly a villain who loves being a villain and it's great yeah, it's he's very Belloc in that yeah. one, I think, from Raiders. Yeah, absolutely. Even though in this one, he is the end of the line, right? There's yes. no Hitler above him, but um, or even German army. Like, no. the Dutch are bad enough in this movie, yeah. so that's just it. They're sticking with it. <laughs> but um, he's he's definitely got that air of... Uh, you know, and I guess a little, a little John Hurt from Jake Speed. Yeah. Where he, yeah, he enjoys being the bad guy. He enjoys living the good life. Yes. You see him. Uh, oh, man. It's, it's great. Uh, honestly, I, I was thinking about it and I'm like, this movie would have made a better sequel to Romancing the Stone than Jewel of the Nile did. Oh, sure. Like, have, instead of Sandy and Stephanie, have Jack and Joan, and and you don't need to, to have a reprise of, I mean, as much as I love Danny DeVito, you didn't need him in the second movie. You could just, you have Sabu. <laughs> Rajinikov is just amazing. This was his only, his only American film, his only Western film that he ever did, and it makes me sad that he didn't do more. Yeah, and just to talk about, his performance in this movie for a, for a tiny bit. Oh, absolutely. What I love is, you know, and I'm well aware, right. That in many ways, this is a, this is a late eighties action movie. 
while it's an adventure, you know, in in the wake of Indiana Jones, it's also very much an 80s action movie also. Yes. And so, you know, things like the the parking tickets trope and other things are presented unironically because this is when those things were happening. Right. You were not out of that trend yet. And so a lot of things that from the modern perspective, some people might laugh at, right? Because it's being presented with full heart. Right. But the thing is, is it's okay to like things. Sometimes I just want to see a hero in a movie be a badass and do badass things. Yeah. And I don't need to laugh at it. I can shake my fist in the air and go, yeah, exactly. And just unapologetically. So, and that's, that's who he is in this movie. His performance is always on point. Yeah. And he is always being a badass. Like if he's having a cup of tea, he's being a badass while doing it. And I love it. 100% agree. Yeah. I, I, it's just a delight. And, Sandy and Sabu, they get inside the palace through a secret tunnel and they they make their way through the palace. They're fighting guards as they go. Uh, But eventually Sandy comes crashing down into the courtyard. They're trying to cross like from one side of the courtyard, like above, and they're going across on like a zip line. Oh, I love that part in there where you have Van Hoven dining with Sandy. Or maybe not dining, but they're together. Or step. Oh my God. Yes. Because <laughs> the, the names shouldn't both start with S. No. There's a reason. So Van Hoven is with her. And what I love is that uh, he's asking her, your husband wouldn't play games with me. <laughs> yeah. And then you just cut to Sandy on a rope around the castle swinging as you're talking <laughs> yes. about, as they're infiltrating. Yeah. Like- yes. And it's such a great. Such a great cut, um, Einsteinian, if you will. I love it. Oh, juxtaposition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it, but eventually he comes crashing down into the middle of the of the of the dinner party, and we get we get the amazing exchange between Sandy and Van Hoven when Sandy corrects the pronunciation of McVeigh. Oh, McVeigh. Uh, I. I can't remember which one right, right one, but like Sandy corrects the pronunciation of his last name, and and Van Hoven says, "What's in a name?" William Shakespeare, and Sandy replies, "Fuck you, David Mamet." And my theater major heart punched the air. I was like, "Yes,", yes. <laughs> again, a moment of badassery that's just badass. It is that's all I need. And I would love to say that at the top of that, uh, when when he crashes in, Van Hoven does say, nice of you to drop in, Mr. (laughs) McVie. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it's it's so great. And then so then, you know, uh, fights ensue. It seems like for a moment that Van Hoven has won. And then we have this moment that, that genuinely surprised me. Oh, yeah. Like, it genuinely, unironically surprised me when Van Hoven takes out a sword and smashes the ruby, and it's a fake! And I'm like, dun-dun-dun. I did not see that coming. That was a plot twist I absolutely did not see coming, and it it was fantastic. Then you get this prolonged extended fight. There's a a sword fight with Van Hoven and and Sandy, and then Sabu comes in and takes his place. Like Sandy's fighting with him first, and then Sabu comes in and takes his place, which is kind of the the, the movie. Uh, Although it's Stephanie who knocks Van Hoven out cold with a Ming vase. Yeah. 
And then Inspector Ramesh shows up to take charge of the whole scene. And we don't, we're, we're, there's that moment where like, I, do, I still don't know where the real bloodstone is. And, and the, the prevailing theory at that point in the movie seems to be that it was never stolen in, in the first place. Like the, a fake was. It was always a fake. Yeah. It was always a fake. And then the reveal is oh, so, so good. Great. Oh, yeah. And, and, and a great a great shot by Dwight Little. Yes. So after the adventure's over, Sandy and, and Stephanie are in this board meeting because it is the 80s and you need to have a board meeting in your it's business, Rob. Business is the name of the game in the 80s. It's her father's company. Yeah. And they're in the middle of the board meeting when when Sandy realizes the truth. And he's like, sometimes the simplest answer is the right one. And I, I got, I'll be right back, babe. Invoking Occam's razor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In Bloodstone. He's like, I'll be right back, babe. And I love that Stephanie's like, not on your life. I'm, you know, like she goes with them. Yeah. And they, they catch up with Sabu, who he was the one who switched the real Bloodstone for a fake. And he's holding it. When you cut away from them. You get that long shot. Yeah. And he is singing Strangers in the Night, but hum, humming or whistling. Humming it, kind of semi-singing. It's it's not the lyrics, but he's doing the tune. And you get this long shot. So he's very tiny in frame, and he, he holds up his hand. And the way that they have him placed and where the sun is, you see the red just like shining through the bloodstone in his hand from a distance. It's so good. And it's such a... It's like such a nice little artistic reveal. I mean, did we know at that point, you know, who it was going to be? Sure. But it's still just a great way to present the information and the kind of care that you 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 want people to take when they're making a movie. Yeah. I absolutely. And 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 they catch up with him. They make a deal, you know, to try and sell it and split it, uh split the money, but except Inspector Ramesh shows up at the very end to take custody of of the bloodstone and and they have to make do with the reward money. It's interesting to me. Rob, this is the first movie in all of the movies we've watched for this series that actually raises the point that many, if not all of the objects at the center of these films are stolen from the countries and the peoples to which they rightfully belong. Yeah, and um oh Checks notes. Probably not a coincidence that this movie, yeah, was in part made by Indian filmmakers. Yes, it was. A, it was an American Indian co-production. Yeah, and it's it's fun. It's really really good. And then you get an amazing end credit song. Oh my goodness! Oh, that just makes me want to party with Sabu. Oh, absolutely! In, in the late eighties, though, I think now would probably be too late. But uh, you know, it's funny because two movies to the today that are that have some sort of core similarities. You both have, you know, couples that are sort of at the center of things, but they couldn't approach things more differently. Like one, you know, I'm just like one, I was ready to just sort of, you know, jump out a window. And the other one, uh, you know, is just punch the air fun. And it, it's just interesting. It's just interesting. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, it's not like Bloodstone is is perfect either just from a filmmaking level or even from, you know, the modern perspective, right? right? You've got a guy in, you know, Indian face, a white guy in an Indian face playing a character. That, that is true. And yet, even with, with it, you know, the warts of its time, however you want to term it, it is a movie that doesn't seem to disrespect the Indian characters in the movie, right. which I think... The same cannot be said for Tennessee Bug. Oh. 
Um, no, doesn't even res- doesn't respect any characters in that movie. It's just and look, you know, I know there are some folks out there who probably don't who, who may not care about that sort of thing. Right. And there are folks who care very greatly about it. But I think in looking at these two movies, what it shows is that whether or not you care about other people's feelings, and I think that you should, even if you don't, Bloodstone is a better movie just from a filmmaking standpoint. It is an objectively better movie. And it's it turns out when you examine things from different sides, and that is your perspective going into something, that's your perspective in all aspects. Yeah. So it's not just... Oh, how would you look at from different characters perspective, which you absolutely have to do if you're making a movie. But I would imagine that like, hey, what about A and B and C when you're doing that, when you're thinking of which shots to do, right? you come up with better shots. Like it's just a mindset that is more exacting and holistic and better. And I think it shows also uh, if you decide to make a movie good, it also helps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's that too. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that is the perfect summation for today. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting. It's really interesting. Next week, we will be back with our tenth and final episode in our Get Me Another Indiana Jones series, and we're going to be going back to the studio that loved Indiana Jones inspired films more than anyone else. That's right, folks. It's another Canon Films episode, and we're going to be exploring Firewalker with Chuck Norris and Louis Gossett Jr. and River of Death with Michael Dudikoff. <gasps> yes. Dudikoff, baby. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Get Me Another Pod. Tell the show about your... <laughs> Tell the show. <laughs> I'm going to get Oh, that. this is going I'm in. I'm going to get <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> Tell your friends about the show. Tell your enemies about the show. Tell that charismatic cab driver about the show. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. <laughs>